and I'm on Be Praised. I'm Jack. And I am Meglas. <laughs> no, I, I'm Joe. Um, I, oh God, you know, I just suddenly remembered that I, I, I completely scuffed up my own joke. Oh, no, I was going to start. Yeah, no, I was originally going to start. I was going to say hello and welcome to the, and welcome to Praise Be to Ty. Thanks be to Ty. I, uh, but apparently I have no ability to take note of my own comedy routines, so that's just been blown out the window. And also, we this is probably the record time for when we've introduced the story. I know, like we've dropped some massive hints here about what we're talking about today. Yeah, and I just said it as well. So I guess we're done. Joe, we're less than a minute in. Jack, what did you think of Megloss? Oh my Come god, on. I'm not prepared to talk about this so soon. Let, 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 let's, um, let's do this in two minutes. Go! I, um, uh, Weird Cactus Man, oh, Tom Baker, um, uh, Jacqueline Hill. I'm just saying things that the story did. Um, uh, I, it's, I, I'm gonna... I'm gonna take a deep breath. Okay. Uh, so I I, because... I would say it was um, an extremely entertaining adventure, whilst never really threatening to be very good. And no, thank no, you for I... joining us on the Nine One Be Praised. Done. And, uh... <laughs> and now we're just gonna play some. Now with that out of the way, uh, we're just gonna play some smooth jazz now. And uh... I'll play some hey, music Joe. music from the episode. Um, hang on, I'm trying to think. <laughs> oh, the end of episode three, where it's like. Death, 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 death. Oh, yeah, I heard that. It was like, is that really happening? Yeah. Is that what I'm... I was just like, am I imagining this? <laughs> I think the music is, this... is amazing in this story. Mm, um, yeah. uh, so how are you today, Jack, anyway? Before we start talking about... I was Megos. about to ask you that exact same question. Now that we've got the story out of the way, we're just going to be talking about our lives. On so the air essentially, we've done like the Androids of Tara today. We have found the key to time in the first two minutes. And now we're just going to talk about something else entirely. Yeah. Oh, you know, I, you know, I'm getting by. I have a new microphone. Oh, as do um, I. We're mic'd up now. I know. We're we're actually kind of marginally sophisticated. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. I just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The, the discourse is the same. The technology is a little better. Um, do you remember? I'm going to be no way. Oh, no, no, you hate you do this is this is this before we went on the air joe said he was gonna he was gonna do something is this is this the thing oh, you're gonna oh do? no that was just me saying and i beg loss that was that was the only thing i was gonna do oh, no okay. no like okay. like the last what, time we mentioned we mentioned how like um, editorially unsophisticated we are um somebody uh, somebody popped up with a comment to say um that we were but also how dare we mention that we are which i think is wonderful Oh, do you remember? We, wait, we got called out. I think, I think so. Wait, it, so somebody called us out for acknowledging that we're <laughs> that we're a little. Uh, this is very meta. Are we allowed to be talking about this? Yeah, of course we can. If someone took the time to make a particularly scathing comment, of course we can talk about that. But no, um, uh, like yeah, we are. Uh, we we are kind of like what's it called? I call it guerrilla podcasting. I mean, Stephen Moffat called <laughs> 80s television, guerrilla television, you know, like made on the fly, a bit unsophisticated, but, you know, hella entertaining. 
And that's for our style mm-hmm. of podcasting. We record, we put it out. We don't edit it to death because, well, neither one of us has the facility to do that. Yeah. Uh, we, uh, one of these days, we'll just put out a heavily edited podcast. We'll see how that one's received. Well, that's maybe everybody slick. will stop listening. Maybe, yeah. Maybe, yeah but... a, maybe a really streamlined edited podcast from us is like our jump the shark moment on TV. That's where it was like, whoa. But you so know what? Do you know if we if we put out like an so like an episode that's edited with all like kind of the fluff and like bollocks taken out, it's essentially just going to be you talking. No. So I, it, that, that we should do that. It will be my heaven send. It's just me talking at myself, and well, then you cameo is Clara Oswald saying like one line. I would like to say that I have already achieved my heaven send by doing my twin dilemma commentary all on my own. That's right. That's right. So my heaven sent yeah. is the twin dilemma. Oh Christ! Hmm? My heaven sent oh, is the God. twin dilemma. I, I, that's what that I'm kind of. I've never thought of the twin dilemma and heaven sent in the same head in the same thought. That's very mm-hmm. odd. That's very surreal. Well, it's astonishing to think they are from the same show. They have the same show title slapped on the title sequence. Mm. And somewhere in the middle of that is Megloss. Yeah, well, Megloss. That's a different kettle of fish. Yeah, this was, see, this was me subtly pivoting back to the subject. <laughs> I, I mean, there's nothing subtle about it at all, but well done. Um, I want to ask you yeah, a question but... about the, um, yes. the video clip that you sent me whilst watching Megloss <laughs> of this, the astonishing whip pan. Oh, it's beautiful. I have, I was howling. So what, what occurs? Uh, General Gruggers uh, in Megloss's lair. Yeah, they just enter. This is in episode one. They've just come aboard uh, Megloss's ship on the sort of abandoned desert planet. Um, and they're speaking with the voice of Megloss. And the ship's abandoned and they don't know what's in <laughs> And the general just kind of goes, you, what are you? Ah, forgive me, most remiss. <coughs> I am Megloss. And then it's only the survivor of this planet. And then they just do this crazy whip pad to this cactus. Do you think, okay, I've got, okay, so the idea of a sentient cactus with a plan to take over the universe it's broad um do you think is that what we're calling it okay it's it's pantomimic maybe but but do you think that's the only way they could like possibly like pull this off by just doing like a dramatic reveal and like playing it for real but i the thing i yes Mm. i think so However, the thing that really kind of, and you know, I'll, we'll talk about the direction in a little bit, I'm sure, um, because there are spots of it where the direction is good. Um, yeah, I think so. I, th- I think this is a really thoughtfully directed story in parts. But I, the thing I found so strange about that reveal is they do this whip pan on the cactus that's meant to reveal that the cactus is the villain. But the way it came across to me was like it was like a surprise reveal when 
we'd already had a wide shot, and I think a few other shots where the cactus was noticeably in the shot. So to be fair, though, the... hang on. To be fair, that could just be a ca- a decorative cactus in the room. You're right. You're right. It's quite a leap of logic in Doctor <laughs> Who to walk into a room and then go. Wait a minute, there's a cactus in this sterile <laughs> Ark in Space style spaceship. Is that cactus talking? That planet, though, it is a desert planet, right? Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, it's sandy, yes. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it's not sandy, it's, it's like special effects sandy. But um, mm-hmm. so is the implication that Megalos comes from this desert world? Yes, I believe so. It's I. It, I watched the story a week ago. It feels like a lifetime for some reason. How does a cactus even like come to be like a sentient cactus? <laughs> Sorry. Like, how does that even happen? A cactus with a voice. Where is the voice coming from? Yeah, well, in answer to at least one of your questions, Mr. and Mrs. Megalos had a lovely honeymoon together. Oh, that's nice. Um, yeah, they went to this desert planet and they just kind of held cacti fingers together in the bar- and basked in the sunlight. And Ooh, uh, God, a stork I... appeared out of nowhere and delivered, and delivered Megalos. Okay, because I went somewhere I... way filthier then, but okay. Yeah, I, I, don't, I was going to pivot away from that because I don't think I really want to consider that. <laughs> no, no. Fil- Let's get the R-rated cut of Megalos. Yeah, with, but um, how does he talk? Like, is he like in synthetic vibration with the planet or something, which allows him maybe. to vibrate his little pricks? Oh uh, no, his little what they called? Uh, what um, they called on the cactus? Thorns. Thank you, not pricks. He likes to vibrate his little thorns, uh, which allows him to talk. I, I'm just thinking of that. I can't even remember what story it's from when Colin Baker's going like, boing, boing. Oh, two doctors. Oh, is that is that where it's from? Wow. I was thinking that, but it's like all over, on every single little um, thorn of his. Uh, but maybe he has. Um, maybe it's that thing that Morbius has. You know, the little uh, that kind of simulated vocal cord. Oh yeah, um, maybe, maybe. But I don't think the but, writers... And we see how he moves, do don't we? Because in episode four, there's this hilarious shot of, like, this green duvet covered in snot. Like, uh... <laughs> it's so funny. It's, like, from some dreadful B-movie. It's hilarious. I... Wait, also, I don't... I Who who wrote the story again? What were they writing? Oh, gosh. Andrew... Andrew McCulloch... And John Flanahan, I think, or John McCulloch and Andrew Flanahan. It's one of those two. I, because I was just kind of like, I don't want to ask too many hard questions because I understand the story came about in a bit of a rush. Yeah. Um, but I do re- sort of following on from your point about how does it have vocal cords? How did a cactus build a spaceship? Was because is that Megalos's ship? Uh, what the ship they get away in? No, 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 the, the one they find him in. That you know. Oh, that kind Megalos. of that that secret base that comes up out of in what uh, may I say is a pretty nice special effect. Yeah, I, I, not too bad. You've got the two the the um, General Grugger and Brotterdag there, kind of in screen, 
and the planetscape, the moon in the sky, <clears throat> the screens, and then the base coming. I <clears throat> that's Doctor Who going for. That's ambitious, isn't it, for Doctor Who? Mm. And I don't no, know <clears throat> if it's really in, like, entirely convincing. Sorry, I have a frog in my throat. Would you excuse me one moment? <clears throat> there we go. But I think I think it pulls it off well enough to to say what's happening in the in the in the story. Yeah, um, the effects are. Oh look, you, you got some, you got some lunch. I've just had lunch delivered. Yeah, bacon sandwich. Lovely. Anyway, yeah, that's happened in the podcast. Um, this is a very ramshackle podcast we're doing today. That's right. No, no, no. But we are we're talking about Megalos. That's what we're here to do. Um, that's right. But um, yeah, so so I assume he has the capacity not only to absorb people into his cacti self and become like Cactus Man, but he can also turn into like a a, a bit of slime, like he does, and and sliver about the place. Yeah, it's so funny at the end when he's trying to stop the countdown and he's like, and he's like nine, eight, seven, no, General Gaga, don't. It's so funny, like. Oh, I love it. I just I, love it. I feel like I'm going to... Uh, since we've been jumping around a little bit, I'm going to broad. I'm going to go to a starting point with Megalos, which is, what do you think of Megalos, Joe? It's really silly. <laughs> but what I find really interesting about Megalos is, um, obviously, Christopher Godbidmead, Yes, I did call him that. And um, John Nathan Turner. Yeah. Well, and... I like to call him. I just call him God. Who, John Nathan Turner? No, um, Bidmead. I just oh. call him God. And and the actual God that is Barry Letts, because Barry yeah. Letts was a was a, an executive producer on this season. They That's all right. got together and decided no more silliness. The season sixteen and seventeen, it's all got a bit silly and pantomime and ridiculous. And they produce the Leisure Hive, which has a few silly moments in it, but it's generally like quite straight and quite um, seriously played. And then they produce Megalos, which is so much stupider and sillier and like more embarrassing than anything that season seventeen could even dream of. I mean, yeah, it is I, a, it's a ridiculous story. I was gonna say. You know, when I watched it, I, I just kind of was sitting there going, "Okay, so did they? Was Tom Baker actually wearing this burgundy suit in season seventeen? Because I think I'm in season seventeen mm. right now. I don't didn't know that J June Hudson was employed at the tail end of the Douglas Adams era. The thing is, as well, is like it has some real like season seventeen is known for having some um, how should we say operatic performances. But yeah, yeah, there are, yeah. I mean, Jacqueline Hill, I love her to pieces, but it descended from the heavens. You know, <clears throat> she is like, she needs her own musical. Like, she, she. <laughs> <laughs> and, What's her character called again? Uh, Lexa. Yeah, Lexa, the musical on Broadway. <clears throat> and um, you've got. Uh, you know, there's a, the Dion man who's like, the dodecahedron is a myth. It's a legend. You know, they're all, they are all very broad performances in this. Yeah. Especially that guy, <clears throat> the, the person who knows the doctor, um, the old guy. 
Oh, um, Zastor. Oh, bless that yeah. man, though. You know, he was quite ill, and this was quite near was the he? end. Of his, I think this might have been his last job. Aww. And like Hartnell in the tail end of his era, he was really struggling with his lines, apparently. No, well, you... I mean, you can kind of tell, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not, but you know, it is Megloz, so I suppose, you know, A, you, with a script like that, you don't necessarily have to give a dignified performance, and B, it's a lot of very, co even by Doctor Who standards, it's a lot of very complicated gobbledygook. Because, mm. um, uh, even though he literally looks like Skeletor, I'm, when I came in, I was like, "This, where's the skull? Um, uh, episode one, I found so strange because for the first half of it, there was no action really in the story whatsoever. It was a lot of just people talking. Uh -huh. You had a, it was it was just alternating between um, a lot of people talking in council rooms, mm. and a lot of people and just wrote the Doctor Loads and Canine talking of exposition, and talking on the TARDIS. There's tons of exposition in that first episode, so they're like, you know, they're trying to <clears throat> let you know they can't show you the scale of this world and this underground world. They've only got a few sets. So they're, you know, talking about how many people there are, um, the the past conflict between the scientists and the religious bunch. Um, the doctors talk, uh, remind us about the lush, aggressive veg vegetation. And they're trying to oh, paint yes, this picture of this world, but it's not done yeah. in like that kind of Robert Holmes skillful way. It is just like an info dump. Yeah, and because I, I, I think I, I have this in my notes where it's like there's an awful lot of exposition, talking, and made up words with no immediate context. So there's yeah because you haven't seen any any of the zealots in action or just any action, you can't in your head you can't immediately associate what they're talking about with anything else in the story. Do you know what it does? Um, it does that thing that Doctor Who does at its worst. Now, I don't think Megalos' Doctor Who is worse, but it, it, uh, when it comes to world building, it has two characters talking, um, explaining things for the purpose of the audience, so uh, giving detail about the world, but they're telling each other things that they would already know amongst themselves. I, I did make a note of this. I specifically have a note here that says, this exposition is super clunky. Yeah. Um, on, on the line, well, I'm an old man. It's like... <laughs> Yes, we know. I, I think mean, at some point one of them even goes, you know, you know this. You know, well, why are you telling me then? <laughs> um, I did also actually, having going through my notes, I did also specifically take note of the extent to which Lala would put emphasis on the word lush. Mm. Uh, just at the beginning, whether in fact, those TARDIS scenes are very... <clears throat> I find it really odd, just going off of what we're talking about. It feels weird that we lit literally start the story following up immediately from where the leisure hive picks uh, ends, more or less. They're, yeah. They've just finished. Romana is still in her sort of Brighton Beach sailor's cost, uh, outfit. Um, that is a, that is a real thing in the 80s, though, Jack, Is because then the full circle starts with them saying, well, now we've dropped off our, our Earth friend let's go oh. let's go to wherever and so th this kind of this uh serialized nature of the story that just continues man throughout the 80s that's really interesting because 
I find that really interesting just because, you know, when you start in the leisure high, I should also say, Joe got me um, season the season 18 box set as a Christmas present. Eventually. Uh, eventually. Um, and um, I, I kind of wanted to do, to kind of commemorate it, um, getting it. Um, I was like, I'd like to do a season 18 story. And Joe said, which one? And rather than go for something, oh, no. I chose... I think even you were like, why Megalos? I said to you, let's do the E-Space trilogy, because those are fantastic <laughs> stories. Let's do Legopolis. You know, that's a, an iconic story. No, no, I want to do Megalos. I'm like, okay, well, that's very you. <laughs> um, but, yeah, what I was going to say is I do find it strange, now that, you, that, now that you mentioned that, that, you know, season 18 begins with this apparently huge shift, shift yeah. from the end of the like you really get this sense that a lot of time has passed between season 17 and 18 mm -hmm. um and there's a lost period of stories mm -hmm. and then you go you have this time jump and then immediately everything kind of happens back to back and there's no gap can you imagine That's a more <clears throat> jarring jump in doctor who than from horns of nylon episode four which is basically all in one set running around corridors with Graham Crowden going madly over the top um, to the Leisure Hive episode one, where the title sequence changed. It's synth music all of a sudden. It's like a long pan along a beach, um, like, so like a really stylish opening shot. <clears throat> They're just like worlds apart. And yet one story follows another. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's just weird. Um, in fact, Megalos may, maybe Megalos should have come first. Maybe Megalos should have been like the buffer between. You, you really think? Well, what opening the season with Megalos? Probably not. No. Because what the Leisure Hive uh, was wasn't it the it was quite low in the ratings. It was a very low, lowly rated Tom Baker story. Wasn't one of it? the lowest, I think. Yeah, one of the episodes got yeah. uh, three point something million. So if it had opened with Megalos, I'm sure it would have ranked even lower. Mm. Or alternatively, alternatively, my theory is, is that the viewing figures would have gone back up to what they were at uh, City of Death. Because but, everyone was like, oh, this is this is the same Doctor Who we had last year in 1979. How good. There is like scheduling reasons here as well. But like Nymon averaged 10 million viewers, whereas The Leisure Hive averages, I think, four. So that's that's a big oh, draw. When you when you said nine for a second, I thought you were referring to us. Like, oh, sorry, like, yeah. Oh. It's like, oh, when did we get 10, 10 million listeners? We are the nine ones at home. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, um, so so that's a big draw. Obviously, the A team was uh, broadcast against Doctor Who to try and kind of dent it. But interestingly, throughout season eighteen, and it starts with Megalos, those viewing figures go up constantly until it's get it's kind of getting sort of six seven eight million come by the time we get to legopolis right i think it peaks so kind of... around warriors gate i think warriors gate gets 8.3 or something like that for one of those episodes did it get a big bump for tom's regeneration not as much as you think actually it got more of a bump from peter <laughs> joining castrovalva then every castrovalva mm. episode i think is between nine and ten million and that season stays in that space right through to the end of the season so basically, Tom Baker leaving act was actually quite good for the show. Yeah, I think it, it probably gave it a shot up the arse, yeah. Yeah. That's what, boot up the posterior is probably what it needed. Yeah. If it's producing Megalos. 
Um, oh, that was mean. I shouldn't have said that. But do you know um, what? Yeah, you say about oh, it, you know, it shouldn't start with um, Megalos. It is really fun. Like, yeah, that is true. The idea, like, I find the idea of like um, the humanoid, like cactus man, it's kind of creepy. Like, they they do play it quite well. Yeah. I particularly, I'm sure we'll talk about it a bit later, but Tom Baker's performance especially, but also the man who, is it actually, just before I talk about the actor whose name I can't remember, who plays the sort of English businessman mm. and the kind of alter, the original incarnation of Walking Cactus Man Megloss. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, is it ever explained why they went to 20th century Earth to get that man? No. Although I'm sure <laughs> at some point Gary Russell has plugged that gap. Oh, sorry. I, one, one thing I, I will say is, you know, once you get past those bizarre, the, the really bizarre opening series of events, I'll also say about that TARDIS scene, I found it slightly... And I know it isn't a cardinal sin, and a lot of other Doctor Who stories that I have probably done this that I can't think of off the top of my head, but it did feel very undramatic for the story to begin with the Doctor and Romana in, in a TARDIS scene fixing canine, talking about the place they would like to go, yeah. and go talking so much about... It's like, okay, show us. Show, don't there. tell. It, it, they always say, don't they, the best is show, don't tell. And, and the thing is, they, they are going to show us as well, because we do go to this planet, we do well, see these is, these aggressive yeah, well, this plants. Is, this is what I was going to say, because then you go, you head down to the, you know, you get that CSO shot of, mm. the, of the sort of space pirates. What are they called? Um, um, jazz tacks. Yeah, uh, of them walking on the surface. Yeah. And they've got the business mat, and they've got these genuinely, like, fantastic costumes well at least um general dreaded does it's like they've um, they've come out of some like russian epic isn't it yeah the you know nobleman's court uh, consulting rasputin or something mm. um and uh they have this businessman with them and then they walk inside this sterile room with a cactus in it and i was actually thinking this is actually like genuine in a really kind of very camp but legitimate way genuinely there's some really surreal imagery that's yeah. just being shown on the screen mm -hmm. I, when they were walking across the planet and you're heading inside i was like i don't actually know what's going on and I'm i'll really tell you what interested. it's only something that doctor who would really do as well isn't it these these, these very um oh, uh, interesting contrasts and uh you just wouldn't see that kind of imagery of the talking cactus in the sterile room anywhere else, you know? Like, who would have the balls to do that? Oh, would they do it in Star Trek? Maybe the original series, but not the later stuff, I don't think. I... So, wait a minute, you know, just going off what I was sort of saying, that, you know, the Doctor and Romana spend a lot of episodes... Do the Doctor and Romana and K9 basically spend the entirety of episode one talking about where they would want to go yeah. and just fixing K9? Yeah, they do. And do you know what this is? This is the template for a Sixth Doctor adventure. This is the problem with the Sixth Doctor adventures is it takes him forever to join the action, right? 
and this is what happens here we don't land i don't think because they're stuck in that loop aren't they so we don't land yeah. until the middle of episode two so almost halfway through the story is where the doctor and romana actually join the story and they're going for the purposes get this because this is a colin baker cliche as well for the purposes of seeing one of the doctor's old friends now if you look yeah. at the colin baker era you've got what well, asmail dastari uh Magellan. Oh yeah. Um, um John Perley was in uh Timelash, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah. painting of him. Uh, I swear there's more. There is oh uh Tonka Travers from Terror the Vervoids. The oh, the the, oh, the yeah. Commodore. The captain. You know, and so and that's I think that's a bit of a not lazy, but it's an easy way to say why the doctor's oh I'm just gonna go and catch up with an old friend. <laughs> I uh it's a yeah, it's a very cheap into the story because you know the doctor as a character usually on a functional level as a yeah. character will have some measure of working knowledge of where he's got to um and if he doesn't know where he is he can work out the information quite quickly mm -hmm. but it feels even lazier for the character just to kind of, it feels like a shortcut around even the most basic form of investigation into the story. I'm just going, oh, well, I'm an old friend, so we don't actually need to explore yeah. the world that much. Yeah, exactly. I, I feel like it's like a shortcut the new series could justify um, mm. to get the Doctor somewhere just because of the, the length of the episodes. Like, oh, yeah, 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 we're just going to this place to, to see somebody I know. Like, um, I don't know, like Victory of the Daleks, where Churchill calls up. And it's like, okay, yeah, Winnie, I'll be there in a bit. You know, it's a it's a quick in, but you don't need a quick in in classic Who. You've got an hour and a half to tell the story. Mm. So one of my favourite things about this story, and I must, I need to hear your opinion on this, is the gas tax. These like ridiculous pantomime, uh, <laughs> what are they? Bounty hunters, mercenaries, kind of, yeah. And like, like I said, I absolutely adore Brotterdak, the um, the bumbling psychic. Oh, who really wants Tom Baker's coat? There's that great line, isn't there? In episode four, it's like, oh, now he's done playing the doctor, I'll have his coat. And that was a deliberate line put in because they knew Tom Baker was going. <laughs> Um, really? Like they are, they are really kind of goofy, but I I think they're like the funniest thing about this this story. Oh no, I I think initially I I and on some levels I'm not sure how seriously the actors are taking it. I think they they are taking. I think they're committed comic performances. Yeah, they are. They are a bit broad. I, I don't think I'd go so far as to say they're actively taking the piss. Um, but I no, I, I I ultimately really quite enjoyed them. I think the moment for me where she's like, no, I'm on a hundred percent on board with these characters. They can stay in the story for as long as they like, and I will enjoy it. Go on. Was when um uh was when uh I think it's an episode. Two, yeah, I think it's an episode two when Romana is like, oh, you know, uh, you, 
do you been this isn't where we're supposed to go <laughs> do you have anything you explain and it's just like anti-clockwise and you literally hear one of them yeah. go what oh and the other one's like it goes rotation revolving revolving or something doesn't it like he's trying to figure it out yeah, and I think it's in that moment that, and, and they even have this bit afterwards where she explains like the anti-clockwise rotation of the planet, <laughs> so and they funny. have this moment where they're literally doing this kind of comedy grunt routine where they're like, "Huh?" It is so funny. I think it's literally you could put them as background characters at like a county fair in Wallace and Gromit. Or something, and they would look appropriate. I'll um, tell you uh, my the, my the bit that makes me laugh every time, and it's so joyful because it's in two episodes. Um, it's the end of episode two, and that stratospheric line reading of "She's seen too much, kill her." <laughs> it's so funny. Oh, that's the cliffhanger, isn't it? It makes me die. It's so over the top. It's like Professor Zaroff over the top. It's so funny. And do you know his name? Brotterdak is like an anagram of bad actor because they figured they would get in some terrible actor to play like the the comedy psychic. And he's actually an actor of some repute. Repute? Repute. but he gives a he almost gives like a deliberately bad performance <laughs> he's so funny um they spend they they spend so much time i i think those two actors must have greatly enjoyed working together if nothing yeah. else because they're always mugging them pulling all these faces like when Meglot during the ups, objectively by every metric absurd <laughs> sequence when Megalos is created. Oh um, my god, the music. Just the look on their faces. Because you've got um General Dredger who's got this these really twitchy he does a lot of twitchy eyebrow acting. He's constantly like going, ooh, and raising his eyebrows, waggling them around. And then you've got um for what's his name? Bre- Brent, not Brendan. Um, Brannigan. Um, Brotterdak. Both. I wasn't even close. It's it's um, also it's General Grugger. General Grugger. Yes, it's, it's even Dredger. worse than Dredger because Grugger is like you know. I just imagine him like down in a foamy beer. Go on. And it will be in character for him. General Grugger. Um, glug glug glug. General Gluggan. <laughs> Gluggan, Gluggan. I love it when he kicks K9. It's so funny. <laughs> he apparently did agree to do the story yeah. so he could kick K9. No, only if he could kick the dog. That's the quote. I, you know what? I think Tom Baker, that was part of Tom Baker's contract for season 18. Maybe they convinced him to stay on off. Uh, on the condition that he could escalate from going shut up K9 to actually just kicking K9. I think he basically said he wanted to be like the most hated villain in all of Doctor Who because he kicks K9 out of the arse. I don't think he really succeeded in that. Uh, <laughs> no, probably not. Probably um, not. Uh, you could call that a failure of writing. You could call that a failure of performance. You could say all of the above. Like, okay, uh, but like those, those, um, those mercenaries, yeah. 
there was a book there was a bbc book um a second doctor one called combat rock okay and it featured a bunch of mercenaries out in the jungle um and it was notorious because they were like rapists and murderers it was a, a book all about cannibalism it's it's one of those truly explicitly graphic bbc books yeah from yeah. that period and it shows you these characters these type of characters but played for real uh, you know and you know they they like come on to victoria they torture jamie they um it's it's nasty and it's really violent like and it shows you how this probably was the better approach to make yeah. them funny and um you know over the top and you just wouldn't want to see that would you not really i, I mean, mean that's that's what they're supposed to represent they're supposed to be these these nasty fellas out for a buck um testosterone fueled you know a bit like that that bunch from um the girl who died that you like oh the um uh, the maya yeah bit bit like that but the way this is played uh it's in no way convincing it's in no way authentic but it's hilarious well, I think Doctor Who is frequently in this position where, you know, when it wants to do, at least with mercenaries, or either if they're competent, they will be scary. If they're down on their luck, they're comedic. Because I don't think anybody really wants to see low stakes, kind of down on their luck thugs and mercenaries mm. who are as nasty as a Dalek. No. Um, Although you, that, you, what about Case of Androzani? Who can actually threaten the narrative? I suppose Androzani has mercenaries. Androzani has like genuine mercenaries that are nasty, doesn't it? And they're really yeah. unpleasant. They're like unpleasant to be around. Yeah, and you know, I think we talked a little bit at the time, didn't we? Where it's like, you know, it's good that Doctor Who doesn't go for this kind of stuff that often. Yeah. Um, and even that, and you know. Eric Saywood goes for it a lot of the time. And I think, you know, one of the things we find out is that even with nasty characters like that, sometimes what makes them, if not relatable, palatable, is that sometimes they can they can be funny. Yeah. Like, look at um, um, Glitz and Dibber. <clears throat> they're, they're supposed to be like Mercer. It's like, like Dibber, uh, sorry, Glitz. Dibber's just super hot. Um, I mean, he, he doesn't need to do anything beyond that, really. He's just so insanely yeah. hot. Um, but Glitz has, you know, fabulous knives, doesn't he? Of, uh, you know, oh, my therapist said that to me once, but, you know, he would say that. I've just tried to kill him and things like that. You know, like, he's a really funny yeah. character, a world away mm -hmm. from what you got in Androzani. But I think for Doctor Who, for the audience it's supposed to go out for, the general... Oh, I was gonna say dredger then, thank you. The general gruggers and the glitzes of this world are general much more Gluggan. are much more kind of suited to the tone of the show. Mm. Oh yeah, I would say so. Um Yeah, I'm gonna change the subject. Mm -hmm. Uh what do you think of the episode one cliffhanger? The the what the time loop? Yeah, <clears throat> and it's uh, turning out that Tom ba that Megos is now going to be Tom Baker for the rest oh, of the story. So that's, that's where the story kicks off. 
Yeah, because I was going to say, because, you know, I was ready to rubbish Megalos quite a lot, but I got to the end of episode one, and I, I had been wondering why, why on a structural level, I don't understand why we've been in the TARDIS for so long. Yeah. And then at the end, they get stuck in this loop, this time loop, and then you get the reveal that Megalos is going to impersonate Tom Baker. And I was like, oh, that's a proper good cliffhanger, that one. And do you know what? Um, that is the difference between 17 and 18. If he was playing Megalos in 17, he would be like notoriously over the top. Whereas he underplays that and he's scary. I think he's probably scary as Megalos. There's one scene uh, where he drags Karis off into the shadows and he does not say a word. Oh, yes. Because yeah, is that when he's got the cactus? Yeah. And he kind of takes her hands and just makes this kind of spooky eye contact with her and doesn't blink. And, uh, like, you know, that makeup is is insane. But he owns that makeup. Like, he makes that mm. convincing. Yeah, and he... It's the second consecutive story where they altered the physical state of Tom Baker in such a way that he has to give a deliberately different performance from the doctor as per usual. Because in the leisure hive, you know, he's aged several thousand years and um, he has to play the doctor, but very, very old and kind of withered and yeah, lacking the great, vitality. Isn't of, it? It's fantastic you know, the way he plays that. Yeah. And he has to, you know, in Le in Leisure Hive, the Doctor has to lack the vitality that the the Doctor usually has, let alone the fourth Doctor, who is hugely bombastic and energetic. Yeah, um, I'd say he's really... acting again. Like in season seventeen, he's performing. You know, it's like a performance. But in season eighteen, he is yeah, oh, it's fantastic, and it's probably my favorite Tom Baker. Season seventeen, but in season eighteen, they're giving him like acting opportunities again. Challenges, I would say. There I think go. they're challenging. The writing is challenging Tom Baker's limits as an actor a bit more. But do you know what it is as well? Um, because he's become so unbearable behind the scenes. And there are so many stories about how notorious he was behind the scenes. Mm. They've boxed him into a position where he has to underplay. So he underplays the old man in the Leisure Hive. And he underplays the, like, the evil of Megalos as well. We, and it works very well because yeah. um, because there are three kind of levels to Tom's performance in this, which is kind of the standard performance of the Doctor, which is quite it, it's it's decently lively, I'd say. Yeah. It's not quite at the same heights as you know previous. Williams seasons, but it's still recognizably his doctor. And then he has to underplay Megloss, and you kind of see Megloss not really knowing who the doctor is in his performance. So people are a little wrong footed by the impression that the doctor yeah. is this doctor is making. And you it really draws attention to the fact that this isn't the doctor. Because like there are all those little moments where he he misses he either misses things or has to go, oh, yes, that's yeah, a yeah, thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I love the bit where, where he's going. about, like, I like that kind of, uh, the idea that he's got, like, this burning anger he wants to let out. So there's one bit where Lex is like, will you swear allegiance to Ty? And he's like, I 
share allegiance to Ty. And the music sort of swells, and he's like, of course I'd be absolutely delighted to share allegiance to Ty. You know? <laughs> yeah. I. But then you get the additional third layer to his performance, which is his performance as Megloss in his kind of cacti oh, state. Which is so which, creepy. Which is very menacing and very underplayed mm. and just very abstract. Um, uh, and the, is that Tom Baker doing the, that kind of metallic voice as well? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, even though it's not necessarily the best story that Doctor Who has ever done, they do. They commit to it, don't they? They really commit to the idea, this absurd idea. We're going to make it as um, vivid and as creepy as possible. Yeah. And so they do, even though it's not, I mean, I, I was going to say it's not necessarily conceptually ambitious, but the villain is a cactus. So maybe that's uh, not true, but <laughs> it, it, it's not, it's, it doesn't have the dignified conceptual ambition of other season 18 stories uh, if that yeah, makes sense would, yeah, yeah, um, yeah but it is nonetheless still exper giving its lead the star of the show opportunities to experiment with his performance which is still an experimentation in, in and of itself that's appropriate for the season which is so set on for changing sure. things up a little bit and they would continue um, to give him opportunities like that like um in full circle he gets one of his best ever like angry rants when he goes at the deciders um at the end of warrior's gate i love it because he has to underplay the emotion of romana going um like it's really interesting that they are i wouldn't even necessarily say they're right into his strengths because i think um the Williams stuff wrote more to his strengths, which is for him to just take material and run with it. Yeah, I, you know, the, the regular accusation of the Williams series is that it played too, way too much to his strengths. But uh, 18, where he lacked discipline. 18 is doing more interesting things, I would say. It's given him more interesting yeah. things to do. Um, I've got a question um, for you. Yeah. What do you think about the return appearance of Jacqueline Hill? Yes, it's it's. I don't understand. I I think she's. I don't understand why they brought her back for this story. Um, I find it baffling that you. I like. I have no problem. I, in fact, I'm really happy to see mm. her. She's, I'm just she's so, terrific. That, that could have been like a, a really humiliating role, couldn't it? And yet she's quite dignified in that part. Yeah, I mean, she is definitely overacting, but you have to in that part. And she sells it as well. It's a very thin part that essentially boils down to, you know, I'm a religious cultist. I have no crit critical faculty of my own to question the, my own belief system. Yeah. Um, uh, it's not a particularly sophisticated part, and I think Jacqueline Hill does, generally speaking, does the right job of working out when to af afford it. I think she knows where to put her energy. Yeah. I think she knows when it's like this scene benefits from 
probably going a bit over the top because that's going to breathe life into Um and then in other times I think she knows when to take take it down a notch to make it look like this character is smarter than she is. I think the idea is she's supposed to go on a journey, isn't it? Like by the end she's cooperating. Like she 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 starts off and it's this very kind of discordant relationship with the scientists. Um and she's very suspicious about the doctor coming and then she wants to execute the doctor and then she takes over like she takes over the entire place and becomes basically the leader of this place for two minutes. Um, and then in the last episode, she's like, oh, no, OK, I got it wrong. And uh, she's working alongside them. But I don't think it's written very well. I think she plays it really well. But I don't I don't think that kind of journey is very convincing. Yeah, I mean. The, I think the, one of the big problems with the story is at least with its side characters, the natives of the planet. I think, you know, I ha- like I said, I, I have watched the story a week ago, so it's not as fresh in my memory. But I do think it is potentially a bad sign that I'm not even able to really name the natives or the planet mm. or anything like that. But um, uh, I think the, one of the problems that Megloss as a story faces um, is that it does all these kind of... Status transitions and rug pulls and reversals into with the characters politically. The balance of power is constantly shifting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it it doesn't. The execution is very inelegant. Um, there's no people to the point where it doesn't feel calculated. It just feels like it's just like oh yeah now you're in charge okay cool oh now you're dead yeah. Um, it's really awkward, isn't it? Her death, especially, is, is uh, in execution, so and strange. and I don't think it's necessary either. It could have been they could they kind of could have been left with um, the three of them, so Zastor, Lexa, and the Dions. It could have been left with them all. Like, okay, we don't know where they're going to end up, but they're going to work together and try and make it happen. You know, whereas yeah. I think her death is supposed to be like a redemption for her character by sacrificing herself. But you don't really get that. And they, it's really strange because I was so baffled because aside from the fact that that moment I think is a little bit poorly directed because I had no sense that there was one of the pirates still alive. So, and it was like a real blink and you miss it shot. Mm -hmm. Um, And no, you wouldn't, with the way it's shot, you don't really, you can't really see clearly that she's sat saving herself for Romana. Um, you hear her say Romana, look out, or whatever it is, but it's yeah. not shot that way. Um, and I just found it so strange that, you know, there is that moment afterwards where they're attempting to do a lot of gravitas. You've got Tom doing, Tom Baker doing this kind of vintage, slightly, you know, aloof Time Lordy thing that he used to do where he's like, oh, We've got other things to do now, other lives to save. And Romana's like, oh, well, she, as I, it, it, the moment didn't feel earned. But the camera lingers on her body for a while. It does, yeah. As if to say, this is an important moment, but the actual death itself is like two seconds long. Romana, ugh, gone. 
it's it's we it's, have other things to in worry a, about you know what inelegant yeah inelegant is the word that's a perfect word for it um <clears throat> yeah i can't i'm just still thinking I'm, I'm thinking about all those scenes you you just now it's hard not to think about megalos as the villain i'm just thinking about all these scenes that are built around tom baker doing this weird kind of like hand acting where he's trying to hold himself together but i think those and... scenes are probably some of the best scenes in this like yeah. they're certainly like 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 um they're the most striking scenes like visually and that, and mm. that too that could it could be that really embarrassing but that very simple effect of just superimposing the the human guy just coming out and his arm around him i think that's that's super effective and and just tom mm. baker's performance where he's just like you know you'll never escape me earthling and dragging him back in again. Yeah. Like imagine again. being imagine being that person. <laughs> I I I it's a real precursor to the absorber loss, isn't it? Where's yeah. the person who merged with the where's the person merged with Megalos's ass? Yeah, maybe someone you know, someone like creeps out. Oh god, imagine that if the earthling had peeked out of his butt. <laughs> <laughs> I'm free, Megalos. It is weird though because there is no backstory at all for that earth man is there in fact i don't think we ever learn his name yeah the only thing i really remember is at the yeah i was gonna say i don't remember his name and admittedly i've been terrible with character names but i distinctly remember not i was just like why is he here well even um, in the, even in full circle the doctor says now we've dropped off our, our, our earth friend Earth friend, is that his name? Yeah, and you know, he makes a point of saying, you know, oh, well, you know, I'd only told the wife I'll, I'd be out for five minutes. Yeah, but that's the first thing we learn about him. Yeah, which is in the end of the story, and, and they're literally just introducing the... Co it's not even introducing anything, any information about him, mm. other than he has a wife. The, 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 the point of the scene is reminding you that the TARDIS is a time machine. Like, imagine for a second, yeah, they would never do this, but imagine how effective it would be if it was somebody we did know. So it was like a return appearance of a companion, mm. like being dragged out of that ship. I don't know, maybe, I don't know, let's pull someone out of hat who's left on it. Joe Grant. You know, and Joe Grant's pulled out, and she's kind of like sucked into Megalos, and she's doing, she's wearing the Megalos makeup, and I don't know, like, like that would that would mean something, you know? Whereas, why are we supposed mm -hmm. to care about this man? Yeah, yeah. Does that, but does that tie into that problem of, you know, the season, the broadly speaking, the JNT issue of too much continuity, and also doubling mm. down on the idea that you know the the doctor's world is suddenly built around stories he's part of are based around him knowing someone already in the narrative oh that's true yeah that's true i can't really have it both ways can i yeah but you're right it, the story doesn't it doesn't give us a reason to care about him yeah so, so you're in this weird kind of thing where you're appreciating the concept of the, the the inner struggle of Megalos, I suppose. <laughs> the but inner struggle of Megalos. You're giving this far too much thought. I, uh, so psychologically, what's happening here with the inner struggle of Megalos? Yeah, what is... 
what is the Freudian considerations of your inner self as 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 Cactus Man Megloss? <laughs> I should just keep calling him that, Cactus Man. <clears throat> Imagine being a therapist. You know, I grew up under the beating sun, so I decided to build this massive base and these huge screens and take I... over the universe. Nobody ever cared for me. And then Rasputin and his sidekick came in, and, I don't know, I... <laughs> and brought me in a friend. And I realised the value of love and life. God, that's that's the title of a book, The Love and Life of Megalos. Oh, the scandal. I'd what was the it. title of the um Jane T the, the Life and Scan uh, Life and Scandals of John Nathan Turner? That's right. Life and Scandals of Megalos. I'd buy it. I'd read it. <laughs> Um, okay, yeah, so I've got, a, I've got a question for you about Megalos, because there's a piece of trivia that you have said to me a few times now. I believe it was once um, mooted that Megalos could reappear in the new series. Yes, it's... Which is hilarious. Yeah, um, Gareth Roberts has said in, in an interview that apparently for years he was threatening... As a joke, he would threaten that he would write Megalos 2. Um, uh, and in the original draft of The Lodger, um, uh, he wrote it so that the alien on board, the alien doing the time ex glitching experiments, mm. was actually Megalos. Um, and, uh, How would that even play out? How would that play out? The, the the joke itself i think is absolutely terrific um the the whole joke of the scene is that the doctor confronts the villain and it's megalos and the doctor has no memory of who megalos is whatsoever and megalos <laughs> is just going uh is reciting all these specific details he's not i'm the last of we met on and the doctor's going, no, I'm really sorry. I don't remember. I get around a bit. Um, so... Uh, Do you know what the, the, the funniest part of that joke is? Is that um, of all the <clears throat> monsters the doctor would remember, an enormous cactus is probably the one that would stick out. Yeah. <laughs> You'd think so, especially one that's been impersonating him. Yeah. Um, uh, but then again, I suppose people impersonating the doctor is second nature at this point mm. but the yeah the, essentially it, they were trying to do the joke of a classic a, a classic returning a returning monster that the doctor has no memory of whatsoever um and um yeah and the reason they had to cut it because i think it was only in an early draft of the story was because the end in the end of time um russell had done the Vin Bocci. Oh, so Steve, yeah. Mm -hmm. So Stephen, Stephen Moffat was like, well, we can't do another Cactus Monster because that just happened last year, which I find really funny because um, it, there's this weird kind of circular thing where Russell T. Davis couldn't bring the Daleks back to do the Dalek Time Lord Alliance in the end of time because he didn't want to muck up anything about the Daleks return in series five. And then by by contrast, Stephen Moffat couldn't bring back Megalos because of the Vinbachi <laughs> in the end of time. I mean the Daleks, Megalos, they're well on the same yeah. level, aren't they? I think I think as a joke, 
the original title of the lodger was Mrs. Megloss. <laughs> I mean, I really love the lodger, but like the like the um, I actually suppose you could pull that off with the new audience because they wouldn't need to watch Megloss to get that joke, would they? No, no. The whole joke is built built around the fact that you don't need to watch Megloss. So Megalos features uh, a sentient plant, mm-hmm. as does another Doctor Who story in Tom oh, Baker's yeah. era. So, so um, I've been thinking long and hard because you said to me uh, earlier in the week, you know, um, about mentioning the Seeds of Doom. They are so different. And the way they approach the story of a sentient plant is so, so different. In um, Seeds of Doom, it's a very, it's both a physical and psychological threat of being turned into a plant, which is like told in brutal detail and Mm -hmm. with some psychologically i say troubling scenes there are some really kind of effective but graphic moments in the seeds of doom uh, whereas in megalos it's all played as like a bit of a laugh really isn't it it's like mm-hmm. doppelgangers it's it's kind of mired in cliches um mm-hmm. it's really funny though to have those two stories in within the same era technically um doing the same thing but in very different ways the tone of the two stories is so different mm. oh yeah absolutely what, um, what do you what do you think is the more effective approach to um an evil plant i can't believe i've just asked that question <laughs> um i think the seeds of doom. I wasn't able to, because Britbox kind of glitched out on me, and uh, when I was trying to watch it and anticipation, and also I actually genuinely forgot it was a six-parter. Yeah. I thought it was a four-parter. <clears throat> well, it's, it's like a two-parter um, and then a four-parter bolted on. Yeah, um, but I think the approach in from from what I've seen, what I remember. Different things as I saw, I think I saw the first two episodes before things went out, and I'm going off my memory. And, um, I, I'd say the seeds of doom because the 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 difference part, not completely, but part of why Megalos is ridiculous is the scale of Megalos's plan. Yes. Yeah. So, so the reason, part <clears throat> of the reason, aside, I mean, just visually, um, Megalos is so outlandish to look at. He is a cactus man. Mm -hmm. And you've got actual British actors in with cactus spikes on their faces and they've still got their hair as well, which just looks even sillier. However, um, in terms of what makes the crinoids more effective, I think it's because psychologically their behavior still fits the parameters of a of a plant, if that makes sense. Oh, so the doctor mean. describes yeah. them as a, you know, they're like outer space garden weeds. 
they go they infest the planet and if they allow if they become established they you know decimate all animal life yeah so even though they are essentially out of big green plant monsters their behavior still matches the behavior the way a weed would work in that they infest the planet and fill it up um, so because we understand it's the scale of its the scale of it the violent the violence that is committing is still understandable with within the con within its nature as a this kind of organic plant uh-huh. whereas you get the opposite of that with eggloss air you kind of don't understand how a talking cactus has aspirations yeah. of taking control of the entire universe. That that's how it makes. Well, we said as well, man. There's there's no kind of there's no kind of uh, explanation as to how this creature came to be, how he yeah. built what he built, how what their civilization was. There's just no context at all. Yeah, so with the crinoids where it goes, you're like, they'll ravage a world and take it all over. Mm. It's framed as like, well, yeah, of course, because that's what weeds do. They infest and take over uh, a habitat. Whereas with Megloss, you're kind of going, wait, the the concept just, it makes it look ridiculous because you're going this, it literally frames it as this is a cactus with aspirations of taking control of the universe. So it invites you to ridicule the concept. Yeah. Yeah, and <clears throat> and that's something that you can very easily do in Megalos as well, because yeah, um, p- pushing away from Caesar Doom, even though I brought it up, come the last episode, this has become a very standard tale of doppelgangers, hasn't it? Of um, yeah. him coming out of that room, him going into this room, everyone doing double takes, and it's a bit French yeah. farcy, a bit silly. With loads of technobabble. There's loads of technobabble in that last episode, and I don't have a clue what any of it means. Do you do you have a favourite line of techno technobabble from the story? Um, because I do. Go on. It's I believe from episode one, which is what, and they refer to it a lot, which is like, uh, <clears throat> I think it's chronal hysteria. Oh, a chronic hysteria. No, chronic hysteresis. Oh God, chronic hysteresis. There we go. Yeah, chronic hysteresis. Hysteresis. <laughs> it's like a Douglas Adams one. You can't get your mouth around. Yeah. Oh, sorry. And they say they have all these things like repeated time cycles mm. and all that kind of stuff. I still don't understand how they break out of the time loop. Well, um, well by doing some really bad acting, Tom Baker forgets his lines. Oh yeah, he does, doesn't he? <laughs> that, 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 I thought that was really, really bad. See, that's one of the things this story, um, it helps to get away with the, the absurdness of it because there are lots of lovely little jokes and gags and cute things like that happening. And that whole thing of like, you know, come on, say your line. And he's still like in the background going, mm. he's got his hands in the air and he's like, yeah, yeah, I know what I'm doing. Like, he's completely forgotten his lines. It's really yeah. funny. I yeah, I was gonna say because initially when they started looping that scene back and forth, 
Uh, I, I don't know. I feel like I know some people find that annoying. I but like as it. As someone who loves Heaven Sent, oh, yeah. which the, the entire end of that episode is basically seeing that episode playing around on a loop. I think that's. I love it. I, and the whole sequence as well. Oh, blast. Now his probe circuit's jammed. Oh, that's easy. Just <laughs> waggle his tail. Thank you, mistress. Prepare to complete. It, you know, obviously, I, can, I know it because I've seen this story a million times. And within that story, I've seen that scene a million times um yeah it's really I, uh, fun and you've got to remember yeah. for some people that's like their first exposure to that sort of thing like a time loop you know for some kids watching mm. they never would have seen that idea play out before yeah i as a sort of thing uh as much as i love the fact that they're both it literally gives tom baker and lala ward the opportunity to do the scene again but even lazier yeah um uh, <clears throat> um, which I, and as you say, it's very funny seeing them kind of messing up the timing of their delivery. Um, but it just goes to show again, how good they usually are, doesn't it? As well, by by, by having yeah, that contrast. Entirely. Um, uh, but I still don't understand how how repeating the scene tricks the time loop into letting them out. Essentially. Oh yeah, no, because it does. <laughs> That's the reason why. Problem solved. Yeah. Um, can, can I, I her delivery of uh, when she goes, uh, oh, blast. Now his probe circuit's jammed, like, really badly. And I'm like, gosh, yeah. And now you go back and listen to the first time she did that and how natural it was. Like, they've got these characters. They, they know these characters and how to deliver it well now, you know? Did, did, does K9 get another, like, robot diagnosis this this episode is he down with some kind of disease again i can't remember he's attacked by the plants isn't he on the planet yeah i think so i'm just trying i know it's from city of, um <clears throat> sorry destiny of the daleks i was trying I, I thought they said something like he not laningitis but i thought they said he had oh, something again I'm not sure it, I I mean, he's broken isn't he because at the beginning of the leisure hive he went into the they sea yeah <laughs> So John Nathan Turner did not like K9. In fact, famously in an interview, he goes, oh, yes, the dog. I wanted shot of that. And that's all he says about K9. Um, and, you know, in the Leisure Hive, he blows up. In this, he gets kicked. In full circle, he gets his head lopped off. In other things, State of Decay, he manages to get through it unscathed. And dreadful things happen to him in Warrior's Gate. He's, he's thrown across the set at one point. Yeah, that's right. They just go, pick him up and go. Whoa. Cajoled, insulted. Yeah, uh, smoke comes billowing out of him. Poor K nine. I uh, and yeah, and he even in this story, he runs out of power and hides away in the bushes. Oh, that's right. Yeah, need to return to the city. Uh, doesn't you know? I think it's been pointed out quite. I think you said this. Um, me? I think you said this to me. Uh, Romana literally spends episode two leading the villains around in a circle. Yeah. It's literally running on the spot, the story. Mm. But it's like it you is... said, they have to present because the doctor, the fake doctor is still inside um, like the sanctum or what it is, seeing the dodecahedron <laughs> at that point. So they have to keep them away. So it's, it's a time loop. It's running around literally in circles. 
any any kind of creative way they can think of to stop them from actually arriving in this story. Also, I, I would like to say we've talked a little bit about uh, how Tom's performance is quite subdued and subtle, but he does ham it up in some choice places. Um, the, the moment where he's going, only I, only I must enter the power room. <laughs> I like the bit where he goes, uh, who are you? I am Meglos! <laughs> oh, he shouts. Yeah. Oh, he's great. He is I also great. Re I also really like at the beginning of part two when they're like, you can't. When they, he comes up with that ridiculous explanation about, oh, well, I've been into the future. Therefore, me being in the past, I can't be affected at all. <laughs> and someone's like, that's a philosophical paradox. Oh, He's yeah. Like, no, it is really beyond your <laughs> comprehension. That's brilliant. All right, do you know what I love? I love, because look, okay, these are all these cute moments that I'm talking about, you know. Um, there's the bit where um, he comes in the door and he's like, um, oh, I'm the doctor, I'm the time lord. He's like, oh, you've been here before. Oh, I say you've got a marvellous memory. It must have been 50 years since I was last here. Mm. That's so funny. Oh, oh yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Oh, yeah. Even when Tom meets, um, uh, is it Haster? Zaster. Zaster. And uh, is, and he welcomes him back, and Tom Baker's like, um, again? Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, it yeah you're right. There are lots of little. There are lots of little cute. I I can't remember if you. I can't remember why I wrote this down. I think the delivery is just very hammy. I just have return to the city with Who's, lots of wives. Who says that? I can't remember. Oh, I don't remember that line at all. Do you remember? Do you remember the wigs? Those really weird wigs they're wearing. In oh, the story? it's very. Um, what's the Jerry Anson show where they all wore the pink wigs? They're they're very like that. They look like helmets. It, no, it's not Moonbase Three, is it? Something like that. Yeah, where where they all <clears throat> they they all have these dreadful pink wigs. But that's like that is a science fiction convention, and that is one of the problems with this story. And I'd say one of its strengths is this story is like mired in stereotypes isn't it like there is so much happening here that's been done before and that would be done again mm. taking over the galaxy doppelgangers time loops you know it's all old hat but i think it's done with enough humor and enough uh imagination that it kind of all mushed together it's quite a fun ride yeah and yeah even uh, it, it's an interesting story to think about visually because there are moments where it really comes together yeah and then there are moments where it doesn't so for example i really took note about how on the alien desert planet i really liked how they had back different backdrops for the different days yeah uh so they, they had you know in episode four they have a kind of yellowish sunset backdrop and then in episode one they have a blue sky mm. kind of backdrop for it yeah um and then, you know, and so you have plenty of striking mo visual moments. And then, you know, at another point, you literally have that spaceship taking off from it. And oh, it's, it's wobbling. like wobbling, yeah. Um, but do you know what? Also, I, like, um, the, the sets for the underground world, I think they're all quite nice. I don't think there's enough of them, but I think it's enough to, you've got like a bit of corridor, you've got the sanctum room where he's sacrificed, you've got the control room. 
there's enough to kind of um, depict what the story needs to depict. I, do you know, um, there are two things I want to say. Firstly, is you know when he gets the, um, what's it called, the dodecahedron? Yeah. Uh, I, I, I specifically wrote down, is this the same set from the Armageddon Factor? Because it really looks like it a little bit from like, like, that yeah. kind of hexagonal kind yeah. of shape. And yet, weirdly, you know, with, with that kind of striking lighting and that kind of misty look, it's way more effective, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and the other thing I was going to say was, uh, how have we not talked about Romana getting mauled by the plants? Oh, see, I Doctor Who jungles. I think they go one of two ways, yeah? You either have Planet of Evil and Creature from the Pit, which I think are stunning. Like, on a Doctor Who budget, shot on film, looking like a, a decent verdant jungle. Or you have Kinder, overlit, kind of plant, sort of garden centre look. <clears throat> or, and Megalos, which I don't think... Uh, the sound effects are really good. The lights aren't brought down enough. It's all done on video. The, the plants look like super fake, like the, the big they, they, rose they, they, they that comes look down like, and water. Um, discarded effects after a long tour of the, um, what's it called, Little, uh, Little Shop of Horrors. I mean, we were going to talk about um, the Green Death, and there's that wonderful sequence in the Green Death where the Doctor goes to Metabelius 3, and they throw every single prop in the store <laughs> at him. And this feels like that. It's like, let go to the stores and find any anything that could go in a jungle and they just found this like dreadful rubbery wilted rose. rose that essentially just comes down and starts eating romana i mean it's just bizarre do you know thinking about creatures from the pit which again was only one season ago i think part of what makes that set so effective and i don't think it's de necessarily deliberate uh but it is a consequence of filming it in a studio uh, is the fact that the actors look incredibly sweaty? Yeah, um, yeah, and yeah. you can t and you can tell it is obviously because it, it you know it's a hot studio and there's all this plant stuff. Oh, they they've added it. sweat to them though. There's no way they would sweat that much. Like they, it is coming up. Their faces are glistening. Yeah, but it does really sell that impression that you know they're in this hot muggy kind of place yeah um and i'd say the, yeah. like they they fill the creature from the pit forest full of um like steam there's steam mm. like rising up all the time and things like that and it just it looks as convincing to me as when they go to an actual forest in season 18 like the very next story in in full circle yeah because it, and it draws attention away from the fact that you're in a studio quite well Whereas, you know, in this one, um, so I see with that sequence, I was really struck by how terrible the set was, but how dynamic, because it became, it was a handheld camera yeah. work on Romana. And it kind of, she's running, isn't it? And it, it's kind of following her like beat for beat, that handheld camera yeah. work. It's really which, effective. Yeah, which is a really it's a it's a striking choice to make because doctor who doesn't really go handheld in in the Not series all that much no. and you get very choice examples the one i think about is when you know graham harper does the handheld camera work in caves of Androzani mm. with uh, shara's jack 
Yeah. Um, which is really quite petrifying. Um, and it's really strange seeing such a experimental technique being used here, but it is essentially done to cover up how bad the plants are. There's... And you know when I realized how bad they were was when Romana le does admittedly a clever little plan, which is leading them anti-clockwise. She leads the bandits through those ve those vegetables again. Uh -huh. And it's a wide shot, and you can clearly see all the space pirate extras and the two um, leads just kind of half-heartedly whacking the trees and the <laughs> shrubbery and you can tell nobody's in real peril they yeah. kind of slightly moving forward and you just realize oh, maybe that's it maybe maybe in creature from the pit that they, they convince because uh they're acting like they are genuinely in a jungle whereas uh, you're right those ex those pirates are just sort of like oh Oh, this is a bit of a oh. nuisance. Oh no, I'm getting eaten by a rose. But there's another um, sequence in here, um, and it's really interesting. It's an 80s story uh, where the pirates attack the base, right? And I used to think that was really badly executed. When I watched it this time, I was really surprised because it does something that they don't do very often, and that's like a, a shock moment where the the tree smashes through the window. And that's really well done. And then the camera swings around to see them getting ready to fight. And then you get the camera goes back and forth from the perspective of like the two sides. And it's it's not perfect, but it's there's a, like an attempt at dynamism and of like conveying what's happening on both sides. You compare this to something like Warriors of the Deep, which is a lot of long shots of lumbering extras just standing there getting gunned down. I think the direction in this story is is pretty good. It's Terence Dudley who only directed this story, and actually, really, yeah, because I think he wanted to write for Doctor Who, so he wrote um, Canine and Company, Black Orchid, The King's Demons, and one other. I can't remember that. So he didn't write like the best Doctor Who stories. So that's some fun stuff there, but it's not the have, best. Have there been? Are there any other instances in the classic series of writers who also direct? I don't think so. Not that I can recall. Oh. There's a couple of instances of writers that acted later on and directors that acted later on because Morris Barry, who directed Two of the Cybermen, appears in The Creature from the Pit, and Glyn Jones, who wrote The Space Museum, appears in The Sontaran Experiment. But no, I don't think so. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty cool. But sorry, you was you were saying. No, I'm just saying. Like, I, like I think uh, it's a story. It has some awkward moments, but I think it's quite sympathetically directed for the most part. And he finds uh, interesting ways to convey what is that like, a really daft story. I think without mm -hmm. a director that was putting a bit of thought into how this looks, uh, this could have like bombed terribly mm. yeah i i think so yeah i think uh, you know the, the performances uh, help a lot but i think the direction does salvage the piece a lot and so does the costume work as well yeah um for the most part and the makeup um, yeah the makeup yeah the makeup and costuming because even though it's 
it's not a great story. The uh, the production crew go all out yeah. on this concept of Megalos. Uh, and, you know, the the space pirate costumes, in particular, General Gluggan. Uh, I'm going to get, I'm going to keep getting his name wrong. General Gluggalugalug. Glug, glug, glug. Uh, great. <clears throat> um, uh, another round for General Gluggan. He's great. He's so deadpan, isn't he? Like, he yeah. ain't taking any of this seriously. He's not going to react in a particularly an emotional way to anything, but he's so funny. Mm. We 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 could I, break yeah. open that bit over there. Oh, that bit's very tasty. Rawr, you know? <laughs> but yeah, he, but he's got a great costume as well. Um, yeah. Actually, something I did mean to say earlier about Tom's performance, particularly at the end where it looks like they've succeeded in in stealing the uh, dodecahedron. Uh, I do quite like that. Um, you know, you do get to see Tom playing. You know, he sits back in the in their space in their getaway craft. Yeah. And he's playing it like he's just pulled up a heist and he gets to be kind of villainous. And it's really fun seeing yeah. him like take the dodeca this tiny dodecahedron out of his pocket and kind of sm smile villainously. I think that's one of the rudest scenes in Doctor Who where he shows the woman the dodecahedron because you can't see what's in his hand and she's like oh, it's impossible and he goes yes the ultimate impossibility <laughs> like that oh, I, yeah. I don't need to know what he's showing her at that point but it's pretty impressive whatever it is. Uh, do we see her ever again after that scene? Oh stop! No, I don't think we... Yeah, we do. We do. <laughs> um, what, was I, what else was I going to say? Um, why... Why did Megalos need the dodecahedron? Well, because he wanted to create that fantastic laser light show and create the greatest Zulfa Furan nightclub in the galaxy. Where those laser, oh, yes. those yellow laser beams are going to shoot out into the night. Oh yeah, thank you. <laughs> I'm just making it up now. Oh okay, that sounded plausible. Quite well, frankly. frankly, I think that's more plausible than the explanation that we get, which is what is a long dormant race, and somehow that would give him like vast energy, so he could. I don't know what. I don't think the story even knows really. I think he's just doing bad things because he's an evil cactus man. Yeah. <laughs> cactus man, Megloss, added again with the big plan. Um, or as the I little girl would say in survival, bad cactus man. I, you know, I think the fact that I don't even remotely understand Megloss's plan and I don't know what he wants to do endears me to the character even more. Yeah. Like, I don't think it even matters. I think okay so I, I kind of i kind of think we actually may have uh, be done talking about medals here because i don't know if there's many angles you can critique this story from but i think what medals is trying to achieve is a fun rise you know yeah. like a fun journey i oh yeah sorry finish. but but not a, like a satisfying destination you know, yeah. so it's all that is like we said along is all the kind of stuff that makes you smile in the first three episodes, which is the best of this. 
um, the insanity of the cactus makeup, which I, you know, used to look silly. I still think it's like really creepy, really effective. It's just that idea of like um, these kind of blisters on your skin and then the things kind of sprouting out. It's nasty. Um, yeah, and it's also the fact that Tom Baker doesn't play the cactus very over the top. He's really mm. still and very slow in his movements most of the time. Yeah, I find when he <laughs> plays bad, it's really, really scary. Mm. Um, one of the things, because, you know, they had a couple of scripts in season 18 that were holdovers from previous seasons. Mm -hmm. So the Leisure Hive was commissioned by Graham Williams. This wasn't, um, though, I don't think. I, I think this was a new script for 18. Yeah. Um, and you had State of, De uh, State of Decay as well. But this one was genuinely commissioned for the season, yeah. wasn't it? I know. And, like, when it, with all this kind of angle stop this silliness, the, commissioning in a story about, you know, a, an evil cactus. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just about the silliest idea Doctor Who ever did. Yeah, I know. Was it... Was it a, a last-minute replacement? I don't think it was. I, not as far as I can remember. There's a com there's a chat with the the writers who are desperately amused by the whole thing. I think um, because they nearly had a second script made. They were going to write the first story of Davison's time. It was called Project Theta Sigma or something like that. Um, and for some for one reason or another, that never came to be. And Chris Chris Bidmead did that one. But um, yeah, no, I, I I think they were basically just given carte blanche to write what they wanted, and then Chris bid me kind of um, put in the the science, you know, and and the techno babble and all of that. Which what which, science? Well, you know, he tried. He probably coined the name chronic hysteresis because that sounds very God bid me. Yeah, is there more of that this season? Um, I think probably Megloss is, is the nadir of this season and it's still really fun. So huh. I think, I think you're kind of, you're on your way up from this point. I, on. How, how do you feel about season 18 on the whole? Cause I know you do talk, you've talked, mentioned a couple of times how you didn't, you don't like that Christopher H. Bidmead was kind of like, stop this silliness. It's all too silly now and too much fun. Mm. Um, but you do actually, despite that, you do actually quite like this season, don't you? I will answer this uh, in just one moment. I kind of go in swings and roundabouts with season 18 because uh, when I first watched it, I really loved it because I thought it was, uh, it is, as you as you watch it as a whole, it is very stylish and JNT's pumped money into the show in the right places, which you will definitely see from this point on in the season. Um, and then I remember I had a period where I was like, well, this is a little bit dry and and it's full of science and you know it takes out lala ward and john lisa and brings in matthew waterhouse and janet fielding um and you know who wants that uh not me <laughs> but now i am somewhere in between i think yeah i think it's a very good season on its own it's a bit like season seven in the per, uh, per years and season 26 
in the McCoy years in that it's a strong kind of standalone season doing its own thing really well. I wouldn't want Doctor Who to be like that probably more than a season. Who knows? Maybe Big Me would have gone to write a brilliant uh, Fifth Doctor era. I think the story certainly would have had a bit more substance to them if he had. But yeah, I think I think it's a strong year. Um, it's not as entertaining as what's been, and it's not as insubstantial as what comes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 a unique year, but but strong. Um, do you think, from a production standpoint? That this was JT's strongest season? Yes, yeah, for sure. Yes. Uh stories like Full Circle, Warriors Gay, Keeper of Trark, and yeah, definitely. He, you, he was invested to make this look really good. Mm. What would you put as the runner up? What the worst? No 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 the second best aside from season eighteen. Oh what, what Jane is... what looking season? Ooh. Yeah, production, um, aesthetic, and... Do you know what? You're going to think I'm mad, but I'd probably say season 22. Ooh! Because I think that, like, the location work in Mark of the Rani, uh, The Two Doctors, and uh, Revelation of the Daleks is some of the best we ever had. Uh, some of the, the set design work, the musical scores in that season... I just think I, I think there's there's an attempt. It's kind of all a bit garish, but it's it's visually impressive. Maybe not time lash. Maybe even bits of time lash. Um, apart from that, probably maybe season twenty one. I don't know. It, all the, all of his seasons have like hits and misses in terms of production, so it's a tricky one to answer. Mm. I suppose season. 18 has the benefit of having Barry Letts as, as its producer. Mm. As it's, so, you know, it's hard for the production to steep too low, given that he was in charge of yeah. running the show for, what, four four years? Four, uh, yeah, four years, yeah. Um, and they do a lot of location work in season 18 as well, because my impression yeah. of it, generally speaking, is that it's quite a studio-bound one with a lot of CSO effects. But the more I think about it, there's... The Leisure High, they start with this, obviously the infamous Brighton Beach sort of scene. Uh, Full Circle has plenty of location work. As the State, State of Decay. Decay. Uh, Warriors Gate. Uh, yeah, Warriors Gate has, has a lot as well. It's only those three, so, really, though. The rest. But, like, in, like the, the sets in Keeper of are beautiful and in Warriors Gate. So it does interesting, like visually interesting things with the studio stories as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's quite a strong story. I'll tell you what, with Megloss, this was the most fun I've ever had with Megloss. So I wrote a review really? for Megloss on my blog and I gave it three out of ten and I, and I roasted it to the high heaven. And I went back and read it and you know what? I was probably a bit prissy. But a lot of the points that I make about it in uh, against it are probably valid. But I don't know. For some reason, on this viewing, I just thought it was incredible fun. Like, really yeah. enjoyable. For oh, all its faults. 
I um I because I think I also looked at your review of it as well and I was like, oh no, Jonah and Jonas, we're gonna have a podcast where I'm going, it was so silly, it was marvellous, and Joe's just gonna be there going, Ah, oh, why did you make me watch the story? I mean it is silly, it's ridiculous. But I think, you know, I rather like silly these days, so it's for me. What about you? Yeah. Um I you know, again, call me crazy. It was better than I was expecting it to be, That's genuinely, uh, in some respects. Um, I just, in terms of, I think more from an idea standpoint uh-huh. than, um, uh, than anything else, because I think I'd come in with this presumption that because... The... <laughs> what? <laughs> because, <laughs> because I'd come into this story with the knowledge that the main villain was an outer space cactus. I, my presumption was that the rest of the story had, would have no good ideas whatsoever if that's what it's leading with. Do you know, I was, do you know what would I, the only thing that can make it sillier, that concept, would be if Megloss existed uh, just uh, to the to the um, uh, adjacent to an ice cano, <laughs> and the climax of the story was Megalos sacrificing himself by plugging him, himself into the ice cano to stop it from erupting. Yeah, uh, to stop the ice eruption of crinoid pods. <laughs> uh, um, I genuinely thought, do you know what would make the story silly? I was like, please don't say it. Please don't say um, Megalos Romana. <laughs> I, I would have gone with that. You know, Lala Warwick, she plays evil in the next story and she does it really well. Does she? What, which one is the next story? Is uh, that... Full Circle. Oh, okay. Cool. I Can you imagine her in that kind of green, yellow? Oh, no. She's makeup? so beautiful. No. Let's not make Lala Ward ugly. Yeah. Let's. In that, what do you think about costume in this story? This weird kind oh, of like velvety. It's 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 mad, isn't it? It's June Hudson yeah. mad, but <clears throat> basically, Lala Ward makes everything look great. So they could put her in you, anything outrageous, and she'll just make it look great. You, th- sorry, this is getting real sidetracked here, but I I really do want to know. Do you have a favorite Romana costume? Because she has oh, a lot. Yeah, I adore her Horns of Nymal costume. I, oh, true. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I, women in red is, I mean, I'm gay, but yeah. whoo, that is hot. Yeah, yeah. The the color of passion. Um, yeah. and she um, owns she owns that story and that costume. I really like her costume in Sharda as well. Uh, well, I mean, I love her costume in City of Death. Um, I love her costume in, uh, oh, God, Warrior's Gate, where she wears that kind of blood red with the long-hanging um, arms. Oh, it's beautiful. I really, actually, really quite like, from what I've seen, her costume in State of Decay. Um, That's gorgeous as well. And her costume in The Leisure Hive, the the, the sailor's... Oh, the sailor costume. Yeah. Oh, Lala Ward, marry me. Yeah. You're, you're not with Richard Dawkins I don't need you to do anything but just be bossy and grump me about because that, that would just make my... I could just live like that. <laughs> I 
And doesn't she exhaust the budget on costumes for Janet Fielding yeah. and Sarah Sutton? That is Janet Fielding. Yeah, something. that's her long-running argument. Yeah. Bloody Lala Ward! <laughs> <laughs> oh, what do you want this week, Lala? Yeah. Oh my God, the behind the sofa on Megloss as well is just a treasure. When Wendy Padmer is like, it's a talking plant. <laughs> And uh, I think they have a lot of fun watching this one, but they're all very confused. I remember in the last episode when Padbury goes, I don't have a clue what's going on. And they're like, no, Sarah Sutton's like, oh, I lost the plot in episode one. <laughs> I, I, I was, I, I think, because I watched a little bit of it. I didn't watch the whole thing uh, somehow. Um, but I, it's at the beginning where um, John Leeson is explaining what a cactus is to Tom oh, Baker, yeah. and he goes, "It's a succulent," <laughs> and Tom Baker is a, a suck, and uh, and and uh, John Leeson just kind of makes this face where he goes, "Ooh, ooh, yes." <laughs> Can you think of a more eccentric sofa than Tom Baker, June Hudson, and John Leeson? It's it's a weird lineup. I can't imagine because Tom Baker's really he's what eighty seven. Well, maybe yeah. He, he's... he's in his mid to late eighties now. He should be coming on uh, anyway. Um, and it's just imagine being in the uh, in the twilight of your years, mm. uh, and someone says, "Do you want to sit down and react to Megloss for two hours?" <laughs> This will be a useful way to spend your time. Your last it's, remaining years. Oh, yeah, bless just going, It hey, was the um, best time of his life, though, and he says that over and over again. It was the best time of his life. I think he adores revisiting it. I think so, too. Um, I think a lot more now, because and then, cause then he'll do that thing where he's like, oh, it was simply heaven. <laughs> Elizabeth. Oh, oh lovely darling. Elizabeth. Mary, oh, love, oh Mary, we love that. What's that thing he, um, you know, I don't know why I think of this, but you know, in the the VHS Sharda sort of recordings, uh, where he the taped bits where the footage didn't exist, yeah, uh, and at the beginning he was like, oh, we didn't complete Sharda. She cried. We all cried, to be honest. He says, um, he says, what giant robot. Beat you, cock. Oh, yeah. Gunton. And when he comes across the Gunton robot, oh, the, yeah. he's clearly, he doesn't have any idea what it is because he misprised. I swear he's like saying the type, the name as if he's encountered it for the first time. <laughs> Gunton robot. Oh, that's right. And the Gunton robot, he has to press the button again because yeah. it doesn't move its arm. And he's like, Shada. <laughs> he's a very emotional man isn't he he is he was very emotional in the elizabeth sladen documentary gosh yeah. that really made me well up when i was watching that he says mm. what is it he says how lucky were we uh, to know her yeah. oh anyway before i get emotional um yeah. jack what are we going to be talking about next time i That's can't wait for this one yeah 
I'm just sorry. I just had a side thought of maybe Tom Baker wasn't very emotional in this story because Megalos, as a cactus, much like a true succulent, just sucked all his emotions in. Oh, maybe, um, maybe, should, maybe they should have gone with that idea. Yeah. The emotion sucker. The emotion, the emotion sucking outer space cactus. Now you can't have a phallic monster like Megalos, whose special skill is sucking. I'm sorry, this is outrageous. We're going in, we're going too far into an episode yeah. by being served now. And luckily for me, I am not defending the succulent qualities of Megalos, but apparently I'm defending Ooh, the well entire done. Stephen Moffat era. The entire Stephen Moffat era. So what will yeah, I be doing then? Um, what was that? What will I be doing whilst you're defending the entire Stephen Moffat era? I don't know. I suppose prosecuting it. Bring forth the accused. Boom. Oh, I've just... Boom. <laughs> Boom. Boom. Sorry. I crawl. Bum bum bum. Crawl. Bum bum bum. Crawl. Crawl. No, there's no crow in the Stephen Moffat era. Yes, that's right. It is the trial of Stephen Moffat. Here next time on the Nymon Be Praised. Sorry, just to be clear, am I defending the entire era? The entire era, yes, and I am criticising the entire era as well. Wow, that is five, six, seven, eight, nine. That's six, six seasons of television. Well, you better get watching then, hadn't you? Also, uh, then afterwards, obviously, we'll leave it as an open verdict, and then I'm going to put a poll out on our social media outlets, and the public can decide. Yeah, and then Stephen Moffat. Stephen Moffat's going to intervene and go, "I am, I am former showrunner of Doctor Who. You can't put me on trial." No, he's going to come after me. He's going to turn up in my shop and go, "You will be erased from Doctor Who." <laughs> He'll send you back to I don't know the nineteen twenties. He's got a weeping angel in his garden. You don't want to mess with that man. Oh, okay. Well. It's, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And, you know, it's going to be like a general overview. Not We're not going to go into a lot of depth of every episode, but just sort of ideas and tropes and, and you know, his style and timey-wimey and all of that sort of stuff. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, tune in next time to hear that. Did we did we choose a quote? Do we have a quote this week? Oh my God, we were, we were so quick into Megalos. That we, we did not forgot. choose a quote. I've even forgot what story we're doing. Uh, I think it was Brandon Morbius. Do you want to just say a quote? P pluck a quote out of the ether. See what you come up what, with. What? Any quote? Yeah. Oh, amazing. <laughs> okay, okay. Wait, 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 wait. I'm going to think. Okay, I've got one. Yeah. It's from the War Games episode two. Yeah. How dare you treat me like this, sir? You sent no car to meet us on our arrival, and now you add insult to injury by doubting my credentials. Do you know who I am, sir? There you go. <laughs> uh, now I have to top that. Um, no pressure. I need to, I, I've never watched the War Games. Um, <laughs> oh, God. He spat about water. Um, uh, Eureka is Greek for that bath is too hot. Oh, no, I can't even name that quote. Where's that from? Is that the demons? No. No, no he says Eureka in the demons. Um, no, go on, tell me. 
I think that's uh, talent of Wang Chang. Finally, Jack. There you go. Go on. Enjoy this moment. Yeah, I'm gonna say it's recorded and everything. Go on, go on, because I'm always having to go at you for not knowing things. Yeah, I, uh, Joe Ford, you're fat. You have to close down the blog now. Oh, the country podcast yeah, is I'm gone. On it. I'm on I, it's a hostile takeover. All, all your assets are mine. We're now in. A, it's, we, this is like the the new Roman Empire. Yeah, it's I, I my mean, face on on the money. I mean, you are my podcasting husband, so uh, you know half of what's mine is yours anyway. <laughs> we have joint bank accounts and everything. I like. I, I put a picture out on social media of like Bert and Ernie, and said this is essentially ours podcasting. But yeah. I, to date, I spoke with several people, and nobody could name who was Bert and who was Ernie. I think we're interchangeable. Oh, I thought you were going to say nobody could name who I was. <laughs> no, 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 no. I think I think nobody could quite decide. Yeah, which one? <laughs> that's sweet. Anyway, until next start. time, shall we? Uh, yeah, uh, we can try our best. We're a bit out of practice. No, no, come on! I think this is going to be the one. All right. In fact, I'm going to like I'm going to like um, beatbox us into it. All right. <laughs> Wait, what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing? I don't know. <laughs> uh, um, uh, we. The next, the case of Stephen Moffat will just, in fact, be a freestyle. Ra- yeah, oh my God, we'll do a, like a rap battle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've got a right one, and so have I. Oh my God, it will be oh, agonising. It will be terrible. If you're still listening now, you're definitely not going to be listening next no. week. Okay, on three, two, two. <laughs> one, one, and I don't know why. I'm... I'll, you do it. Oh, wait, I'm doing it. The Nymon, uh, the Nymon be... Oh, I'm going to stop. Go on. Okay. The Nymon be praised! Be praised! Not bad. I, that was pretty bad.